I'm going to be reading in just a moment from the Gospel of John. If you want to open a Bible uh, to my favorite book in the Bible, the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at the first chapter and then the third chapter in just a moment. You'll be ready for that. I want to begin this morning with a question. Are you a loved person? I'm glad somebody knows. Amen. And it kind of raises the second question, how do you know? You say, well, I feel like I'm loved today. Maybe somebody else says, I'm not even sure. I, I don't particularly feel loved today. Well, you know that feelings uh, can confuse us, sometimes betray us. Uh, they're not always reliable and dependable. And they're rather superficial. And so the fact of the matter is, for you to know that you're a loved person... And to day in and day out, without respect to feelings, live like a loved person. That's got to be something that is at a deeper, more substantial level for you, that you, you know it. You have a conviction. You have a belief. I'm a loved person. So the question then arises as to how does that conviction, how does that internalized belief get developed in us so that we know that we know that we know yeah I count my life has value I am loved how does how do we get there well one of the ways that God intends for us to get there is through our family of origin and for some of us that was able to happen for others of us uh, we had a little dysfunctional or defective uh, experience at that point Uh, In my own situation, as dysfunctional as it was, it did prove to be a means and an avenue by which God loved me and by which I began to feel loved. And one of those happened, uh, one of those means, one of those ways was by what I will call sacrificial work. Um, My parents divorced when I was four years old, and so I really don't have any memories of my parents having a married life. Uh, I do have a lot of memories of my mother raising me and my younger brother as a single mom. Uh, She wasn't particularly well-educated and skilled, but she was able to get a job as a secretary at a bank. And in those early years, uh, it took a long time before my mother got to a place where she could buy and own a car. And so some of my uh, early memories are of my mother getting up to go to work, And uh, in a dress and heels, she would walk around two miles to a bus stop. She'd take the bus to the bank. She'd work all day, take the bus back, walk the couple of miles home. And then she would come in and um, be with my brother and myself, helping us with homework, debriefing the day, preparing dinner, uh, helping us finish the homework, putting us to bed. And then occasionally I would awaken for whatever reason And when I would get up later into the night, it was not unusual for me to find my mother washing clothes and ironing clothes and mopping floors and cleaning dishes and doing all of that kind of stuff after my brother and I had gone to bed. Uh, Later, when I became a parent of small children, I marveled at the energy and the dedication and the commitment that my mother had expressed to provide for and to care for my brother and myself. So one of the ways that we communicate 
that love and others of us begin to internalize that love is that we see this kind of sacrificial working effort to care for us and to provide for us. Another way is through words. And my mother was uh, fairly articulate at that point. She would definitely use the three words, I love you. But she would also use a lot of other words that would convey love. They would often be words of challenge and encouragement that basically would say, Scott, you're better than that. You can do better than that. You can work harder and accomplish and achieve. And she wouldn't allow me to settle for mediocrity, uh, for just kind of coasting. And so there was this constant urge and nudge to reach some potential and maximize my gifts and my abilities and my talents. And then another thing that uh, my mother would do is that she she placed expectations on me. You go, well, I had that too and I didn't like it. Well, I didn't particularly like mine. Uh, as I got older, my mother began to hand off responsibility to me to take care of my younger brother. And then I began to have the responsibility for washing the clothes and hanging them on the line. For you young people, that's what you did before you had dryers. And washing dishes and then drying them. Of course, that's what you did before you had dishwashers. And mopping and vacuuming floors and things like that. Um, and not only that, my mother, you know, couldn't afford to give me spending money. And so it was like, you want spending money? You aren't spending money. And so I had paper routes and worked in stores and bagged groceries and all that kind of thing. Uh, my mother expected that I would be responsible, that I would be dependable, that I would carry some weight of responsibility within the house. And she expected that she would know at any given moment of any day where I was, what I was doing, with whom I was doing it. She made it her business to call other kids' parents and say, tell me more about what's going on at this party or at this gathering that my son has been invited to. I hated that. But the fact of the matter is, they were all expressions of love and care and concern for my well-being. And then the final thing I'll mention to you is that my mother had a, a persevering patience. Now, lest you think my mother walked around with a halo, she didn't. Uh, she had a lot of faults and frailty and made a lot of mistakes, but she did ever so much well. And uh, when I talk about this persevering patience, um, I know most of you experience me now as this totally, you know, well put together, sane, solid, exceptional kind of guy. Uh, but growing up, I was a mess. And um, I caused my mother a lot of grief. I made a lot of mistakes. I uh, sinned a lot. And my mother kept on forgiving me giving me another chance, believing in me, calling forth something better from me. Uh, and she just persevered in patience for me. So, all of that to say this. Ultimately, our sense of worth and value and being loved comes from God. He is not some detached, otherworldly being, but He is rather intimate and close and relationally engaging. 
And it is not unlike things that I just described with my mother or that you may have had with one of your parents. So, for example, in that first category of how my mother worked for me, God has done that for us. When you read the opening verses of Genesis, and we could survey the entire Bible just to talk about this first point, but let me be brief to say the reason God created the universe was not so that he could scratch a creative itch that he had. The reason that he created the entire universe was because he loved you. And he wanted to provide an environment that would sustain your life. And so you get into some of the specifics in Genesis. Uh, he creates, you know, the sun so that uh, we have this capacity to have uh, the kinds of temperatures that we need in which to live and, and produce the kinds of crops and foods that would sustain us. He then provides the soil. He provides all kinds of vegetation. He provides a variety of animals that we can consume and nourish ourselves with. On and on and on, God works, creatively works to provide for us, to care for us. And in some of the things that we pray about and we ask from him, he works to provide and to care and to guide. And then ultimately, uh, we are so busted and broken and have proclivities towards sinfulness. And of course, he's holy. He worked to provide atoning sacrifice that would pay the price and reconcile us to himself. He worked, he worked, he worked. And then when it comes to words, well, he has spoken quite a bit to us of his love for us. And I want you to look particularly, because it's fascinating to me, these opening verses in John's Gospel. So if you're looking at the first chapter, beginning with the first verse, we're told that in the beginning, you know, we were just looking at that in Genesis. Now we're way over in John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What is or who is this word that has always been with God and is God and is in fact the creative agent of God? Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, of course, as you continue to read John's gospel, you find out that he's referring to Jesus, the Christ. And so when you think about the words that God has used to convey his love to us, it actually begins with the act of creation that is a work, but it's also his words. He speaks creation into being, and he does that as the word. So the coming of Christ to us is 
a word of God to us. I love you. And it's more explicitly stated, turn a page over to chapter 3, perhaps the best known verse in the Bible, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We could say at that point that he gave us his word that he loved us. That whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, God gave us his word to say, this is how much you mean to me. This is how much I value you. This is how much I love you. He didn't give us words to condemn us. He gave us words to endow us with himself and with our sense of value and worth. Now, friends, this sense of having a, a worth, a value of being loved or cherished is the, at the core of who we are. And it's not something that we can ever acquire or earn. It's something that he bestows and gives now, some of you may remember some of the reports or some of the stories that came out of World War II with respect to the thousands and thousands of orphans that that war created. And you may remember the stories about the orphanages across Europe that were so overwhelmed with babies that uh, in a lot of instances there were large nurseries with just crib after crib after crib after crib with babies that there were not personnel enough to really give attention to. And so they would make sure that, you know, a baby would be fed. And then there was a ton of other things that these people had to do. And, and the babies were basically left alone all day, every day, except for a time when someone would come to feed. And as you may re recall from those studies and reports, those infants began to become highly distressed and anxious and began developing disorders to the point that many of them died. Not because they didn't have food and shelter. But because they didn't have touch. And embrace. And cuddling. And human contact that said, you're loved. You're wanted. You're valued. Now there were a few other orphanages that had a few more personnel that were able to do the touch aspect. And those children all survived and were able to grow up. And it just highlights the fact of what we're talking about, friends, that this thing of our being valued and, and treasured by God is core to who we are. and We must get it. And God says, well, let me show you. I will work. On your behalf, I will give you words on your behalf to let you know how much you mean to me and how much I value you. And I'll place expectations upon your life. First Corinthians 13 tells us that God expects you and I will become loving people. And that we will embody the characteristics of love. We'll become generous and kind and sacrificial and giving, and patient, and bearing the burdens of one another, and that we'll do that on and on and on. Matthew 25 says, 
that God expects that this kind of character will be displayed in and through us as we care for the least of those in society. And so if you come to Meadowbrook from Sunday to Sunday and you hear me teach on occasion that God expects you to be humble. God expects you to be a growing person. God expects you to become generous. God expects you to be a servant. God expects, God expects, God expects. You know, after a while, you can begin to wipe your brow and go, wow, he expects a lot. That's because he loves you a lot. What's the opposite of love? Hate. What's the ultimate expression of hate? Apathy. I just don't care. And and I won't pay attention to who you are or what's going on in your life. In my own growing up, my mother wanted to know where I was and with whom I was and what I was doing. She had all these expectations of me. Why? Because she loved me. I had friends. They could do whatever they wanted to. They could go wherever they wanted to. They didn't have curfews. Their parents didn't keep a short string on them. And basically, they weren't loved well. And so the fact that God has expectations and hopes and dreams and a destiny for you speaks of his love and valuing of you. And then that last piece, the persevering patience. Wow. Whatever I did to screw up and and hurt and disappoint my mother, multiply that about a million times, and that's where I've been with God. And He just keeps on loving. He keeps on expressing grace and patience and mercy to me. And that's ultimately seen in 2 Peter 3.9. You know, sometimes the skeptic or the cynic will say in defense of their not believing or following God, well, why should I believe in God? The Bible's full of references about how He's going to come again someday and He's going to bring judgment. You know, no, that stuff's happened. That stuff's not believable. Well, for that stuff has not happened because God loves us. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, Don't think because Jesus hasn't returned yet that he is slow on his promise. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, Jesus is delaying or tarrying in his return so that we have more time to repent and to turn to him. It's his heart that none would perish. Here's how it reads. The Lord isn't really bringing... The the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. He wants us all to be able to come to saving grace and have relationship with him forever. Because when the time does arrive that he does come, he will not come as the suffering servant who atones for sin. He will come as the king of kings. He will come as the Lord of Lords. He will come as the great judge of eternity. And those that have repented and received his saving grace will be taken 
to be with God forever. And those who have not, who have rejected, who have rebelled against all that God has sought to call them unto, will be separated from him forever. And so it's like I'm delaying in coming to that point because I love you. I'm trying to give you more time to turn your heart toward me. The question then is, if you are such a loved, such a valued and treasured person, will you live in that love in such a way that you extend God's love to others? Will you live like a loved person? And extend God's love to others. This past week, I uh, was contacted by a friend of mine. It just so happens that uh, this coming week, there will be a nationally known speaker and author who will be in our area. And my friend just happens to be hosting this person for lunch. And so my friend contacts me and says, would you like to join us? For lunch. I'm like, are you kidding? Of course I would. Let me check my schedule. My schedule works for that. I'm I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And so I get to have lunch with uh, someone that I've heard speak often and read their stuff. And I'm really looking forward to being able to have this kind of table time with this person. How loving was that? That when my friend got to have time with this person of renown, my friend thought of me and extended an invitation to me to involve me in the blessing. How awesome is that? Well, I'm wondering if you might do the same. Because we have the privilege... Of knowing the person of renown above all other persons. We have the privilege of knowing Jesus. Of getting to do life with Jesus. Of getting to walk with him day by day by day. We have some of the most awesome experiences, encounters with Jesus right here in this room. As well as in a number of other places. And how loving would it be for you to extend an invitation to one of your friends or one of your neighbors, one of your work colleagues and say, you know what? There's something really cool that's going to be happening as we get to experience God. Why don't you come with me? Now, it just so happens that over the next 60 days, we have some of the most wonderful opportunities for you To extend an invitation to someone else. You heard some of that earlier. Uh, Our Thanksgiving gathering, in my mind, is a can't miss. Uh, Not only do we get to have that great little meal time together in such a relaxed and enjoyable environment, but then we have a a time of worship that is some of the most spontaneous and most fun that we do in the entire year. And so if you had somebody that you cared about and you thought, you know, I think they would enjoy that, it would be loving. Do you extend an invitation to that extent? Uh, Across December, we're going to have these Advent services. 
Anybody you know struggle to keep the true meaning of Christmas in all that commercialized craziness? Our services are going to be special opportunities for us to encounter the God that Christmas is all about. Anybody you know that might want to get in on one of those special occasions? That dessert theater that we keep talking about? Oh, yeah, there's going to be some cool desserts and some cool coffee and all that kind of thing. But we've got these taproot theater players. They're going to come in and do a wonderful Christmas-themed presentation that will help bring a highlight to the entire season for some of your friends. What if you extended an invitation? Christmas Eve, candlelight, communion, right here in this room. What an awesome invitation that would be. Now, as I was thinking about all these things, and I shared some of this Friday night at our forum, I, I distinctly felt impressed by God. And I've been around long enough to know when it's indigestion or inspiration. And I distinctly felt inspiration. That God was saying to me about us, I want to bless. I want to encourage you and the people that are around your life. And I wonder if for 60 days you would trust me to that extent. So like from November 6th to January 6th. Would you believe that I will bless, that I will stir hearts, that I will encourage the lives of people that are strategically placed around your life? And that if you would be so kind and loving as to extend an invitation, I would incline their heart to say yes. Would you believe that? And therefore, would you extend just... Trust me and make a commitment to me to extend six invitations over 60 days. Now, that, that could be any kind of invitation. It could be to one of the Sunday gatherings I just talked about. It could be to the dessert theater production. It could be to uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve. It could be to children being a part of our children's program. Or to youth getting in on the cool stuff that's going on with our youth program. Or it could be to someone that has been challenged with our culture and language and inviting them to our ESL program. Or someone that's got some issues in life and they just feel stuck and they don't know how to get out of it. Invite them to our Celebrate Recovery program. Or on and on. What's going on with single moms? Invite them to our single mom program. And include your children. Let your children invite their buddies to our children's stuff. Let our youth invite their youth friends to that kind of stuff. But just six invitations over 60 days to see what God might do with that. What if we had a hundred Meadowbrookers that would say, I'll do that. Over 60 days, that would be 600 invitations. And if just 10% said, hey, I think I'll come, that would be 60 new friends in 60 days. How cool, how fun would that be? And so we might see 20 new kids in Promised Land over the next 60 days. Who knows? We could have a dozen new people involved in our ESL. We could have a dozen new kids in the nursery as a result of all that. 
and you're knowing our facilities and you're thinking, wow, that might get a little crowded. Well, that'd be a great problem to have. And it just so happens we also have space next door that we just decided we're going to get developed right now. And we launched all that Friday night. And so I'm wondering if you would also consider six months of over and above giving so we can get next door developed and bless and take care of and care for the new friends that God's going to send our way. You're going to hear a whole lot more about that. Uh, but the point is that we're headed toward November 29, which will be a commitment day here. And if you are so directed and led by God to participate in that on November 29, we're going to ask you for a pledge that you wouldn't even begin to pay on until March of 2010. But for six months, March to August, if you'd make some special contributions at that point, we'd be able to develop next door. So let me just see how that's hitting you. How do you respond to that? Would you believe that God's working? Would you invite six people during those 60 days? Would you give for that six-month special period? And as a loved person, extend God's love. To others. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're just struck with the reality of how unlovely and unlovable we are sometimes and yet you love us anyway and it really is our heart that we would so live in your love that we could extend your love even to those that can be unlovely and unlovable at times So, God, we want to believe that you will be at work in our midst in an extraordinary way for these days. And we pray, love us, empower us, enable us to be your agents of grace and invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.